Good morning. Uh, we are in chapter 14, Revelation chapter 14 this morning. And my assignment for the day is verses 14 uh, to the end, but just because I can, um, we're going to actually go through the whole chapter. So we're going to start, because I, I think when we go through the whole chapter like this today, you're going to see the flow of the whole chapter together uh, and how it, how it fits in uh, end-time prophecy here. And so let's begin with um, verse 1. Then I looked, and behold, a lamb standing on Mount Zion, and with him 144,000, having his father's name written on their foreheads. And I heard a voice from heaven like the voice of many waters, and like the voice of loud thunder. And I heard the sound of harpists playing their harps. They sang, as it were, a new song before the throne, before the four living creatures and the elders. And no one could learn the song except the 144,000 who were redeemed from the earth. These are the ones who were not defiled with women, for they are virgins." These are the ones who follow the Lamb wherever He goes. These were redeemed from among men, being firstfruits to God and to the Lamb. And in their mouth was found no deceit, for they are without fault before the throne of God. And I want to emphasize that. They are without fault before the throne of God. The 144,000. Uh, <clears throat> clearly, this is a scene at the end of the tribulation. It's not during the tribulation. Uh, these are the ones who followed the Lamb wherever he uh, went. But we see the Lamb, the Lord Jesus Christ. He's been described that way already in the book of Revelation. And this describes the end of the tribulation when Jesus takes his rightful place as King of kings and Lord of lords. And he is surrounded in this scene by 144,000 faithful witnesses who have served him during the hardest period of time on the earth. And they are the ones who were sealed in chapter 7 by the living God and endured the tribulation, proclaiming the message of salvation to all who will believe. Now notice something. How many are there? 144,000. And how many did we start with in chapter 7? 144,000. There is not one soul missing in this audience, in this crowd of people standing before the Lord. Not one. The Lord has preserved them through the entire tribulation period and now they stand before the Lord, and they are the first fruits. They're described that way as the first fruits of those who enter into the millennium, the thousand-year reign of Christ. The 144,000 male Jewish witnesses have stood against the Antichrist. They have stood against the, the beast. They have stood against the false prophet. They have stood against the new world order, and they were pure, sexually uh, pure, morally pure, pure in their speech, and now they are standing faultless before the throne of God. God preserved them through the horrors of the tribulation, and not one of the 144,000 are missing. Bill McDonald wrote in... Um, his commentary, John 7, as long as a person is walking in the will of God, there is no power on earth that can hinder him. We are immortal until our work is done. We will not die until God says so. And no matter what comes against us, what uh, threats of the evil one come against us, no matter what Satan throws at us, we are immortal until our work is done. And we should take great comfort in the fact that God is able 
to preserve his saints. Let that sink down deep inside of you, okay? God is able to make you stand faultless in his presence. Faultless not because of your good works, faultless because of what Jesus Christ has done for you. Your faultlessness comes as a result of Jesus dying on the cross for you. You are declared righteous before God. Not in our own righteousness we stand, but in the righteousness of the Lord Jesus Christ. <clears throat> and so this passage tells us that the Lord will protect and preserve the 144,000 Jewish witnesses through the tribulation period, and at the end they will stand without fault before the throne of God. Not one of them is missing, and God is able to do the same for us um, until our work is done. Chapter 14 is also remarkable, not just with this scene, but we're going to move from this scene now, and we're going to look at um, angelic beings. And there are six angels that are specifically mentioned in this, uh, the rest of this chapter, and we want to look at each angel one by one and see uh, what we can learn from it. It's really interesting because we, we don't often think about angels. We don't often preach about angels. We don't often uh, study angels. But angels are very active in God's work. You know, they're not just sitting in heaven doing nothing. Okay? God has a work for them to do. They're very active. They're very obedient to the Lord. They do what the Lord's will is. And when they take action, it's significant and it's serious. And in this chapter, it's like God has just pulled back the curtains for just a minute of heaven. And he's going to let us take a glimpse inside of heaven and what is taking place during this time uh, in the angelic realm, what the, God is having them do for him. And so when he issues a decree or a command, they take action. And so let's take a look at the six angels. So the first angel, I, I title this one, The Last and Final Call. Um, and so this particular angel, let's just read it, verses uh, 6 and 7, chapter 14. Then I saw another angel flying in the midst of heaven, having the everlasting gospel to preach to those who dwell on the earth, to every nation, tribe, tongue, and people, saying with a loud voice, Fear God and give glory to Him, for the hour of His judgment has come. And worship him who made heaven and earth, the sea, and springs of water. As far as I know, this is the first time that an angel has ever proclaimed the gospel. The gospel was not given to angels to proclaim. God gave the gospel uh, to the church to proclaim. And uh, he gave it to weak vessels, uh, broken vessels. He gave it to us to proclaim that really through the weakness of man's preaching, the glory of God might be seen. Uh, in the, in the uh, tribulation period, God has raised up 144,000 Jewish male witnesses. We, we just talked about them. He also raises up two witnesses to, uh, with, with great signs and wonders to proclaim the gospel as well. But if you look at what has happened in the book of Revelation up to this point, men keep rejecting the gospel. Now, there are some who are saved, and almost immediately they're martyred, and so there's not many of them that are continuing to preach the gospel because they're dead. So a lot of what is going on here is the 144,000, the two witnesses, and men are still refusing. And finally, as a last call, God sends an angel, and the angel flies around the earth as a witness, as a final witness to the world, calling on men, women, and children to turn from their sin and trust in the Lord Jesus Christ. That's the everlasting gospel. It's the gospel that gives everlasting life to those who believe. And so this angel is proclaiming in every known language, in every culture, in every way that can be understood, and the message is the same. Jesus Christ is the only Savior. And he proclaims this message uh, to the world. The message is urgent, for the hour of God's judgment has come. 
Many of you know that uh, I had cancer. Uh, my doctors have recommended that I go in and I get a, a blood check every three months to see what my levels of uh, PSA are to see if I have any recurrence of cancer. And so every three months I go in and I, I go to Kaiser and I go to the lab and as you walk into the lab, there's a machine and it says, you know, has a doctor ordered blood work? I go click and a little number comes out of the machine. That's my number. And then I wait. And first I have to be called up to pay and then I have to sit down again and then I wait. And then I get called up again for the blood draw and then I, I can leave at that point, right? So some of you have been there, some of you know that, you know how it works, right? I was there uh, about a week or so ago, and uh, I took my number and I sat down. And, I, and there were a lot of people. And as I waited, the receptionist called out each number. And to my amazement, sometimes when she called the number, nobody went up. And so she called the number again, number 32. And then there's a voice that's an automatic voice. She presses a button and the next number on the computer comes up and it goes, uh, calling number 32 to the reception desk, you know? And so she did that. And then she shouted very loudly, last and final call, number 32. <laughs> and nobody went up, no response. But I thought of that last and final call. And uh, if that person did not respond to the last and final call, it was too late. She was going to go to number 33. In an act of abundant grace, God gives the world one last chance to trust the Savior. It's amazing, God's grace, that he would even do this one more time. But he does it in such a miraculous and outstanding way that everybody can hear it, understand the gospel, and God sends the angel to proclaim the everlasting gospel to the world. Why? Because God is not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. Yet most of the world will reject the way of salvation and will suffer the eternal wrath of God in hell, in the lake of fire, ultimately. And this is the last and final call. If people do not respond, they seal their own doom. It will be too late. Is this your last and final call? What will you do with Jesus? The second angel proclaims in verse 8 the fall of Babylon. The second angel's message is Babylon is fallen, is fallen, that great city, because she made all nations drink of the wine of the wrath of her fornication. In this verse, Babylon likely means the literal city of Babylon, but it also, uh, Babylon also represents, um, well, everything that she represents. In, in, in uh, Revelation, it's clear that Babylon is not only a literal city, but she also represents a worldwide false religion and a worldwide com commercial system, um, buying and trading, selling, all that sort of stuff. It's like the stock market on, on steroids. The angel's announcement foreshadows God's overthrow of Babylon. It, it foreshadows the overthrow of all false religion, including the Antichrist's uh, worship, the worship of the Antichrist, and the overthrow of all trade and commerce. It's interesting to me, human history began in this region. Um, it's in, the, the Garden of Eden was in the Middle East, and it would be fitting for human history to end here. The Garden of Eden was in Iraq. The city of Babel, with its tower, was in Babylon. The world leader, Nebuchadnezzar, the head of gold, had Babylon as his capital city. There are prophecies in the book of Jeremiah that still must be fulfilled concerning the city of Babylon, and its destruction must come suddenly and without remedy, suddenly and completely. That has yet to happen. 
Daniel prophesied in Daniel chapter 2, verses 34 and 35, that the image of the Gentile kingdoms, um, represented by the picture you see, uh, had a head of gold, and that was King Nebuchadnezzar's kingdom of Babylon. But ultimately, as the nations, the Gentile nations evolved, it would become a kingdom of feet of clay mixed with iron and ten toes of clay mixed with iron. He also prophesied that the kingdom of the kingdoms of this world would be destroyed. So in the same prophecy that describes the, uh, the, the head of gold and the, that body, uh, that image that we saw, at the end of that prophecy, Daniel predicts that there's another kingdom that is coming, and a stone will be cut out of the mountain, and it will be, uh, it'll strike the kingdoms of this world and destroy them. So in chapter um, 2 of Daniel, verses 34 and 35, it says, You watched while a stone was cut out without hands, which struck the image on its feet of iron and clay and broke them in pieces. Then the iron, the clay, the bronze, the silver, and the gold, that's all of the kingdoms, were crushed together and became like chaff from the summer threshing floors. The wind carried them away so that no trace of them was found. And the stone that struck the image became a great mountain and filled the whole earth. And then later in verse 44, he says, And in the days of these kings, the God of heaven will set up a kingdom which shall never be destroyed, and the kingdom shall not be left to other people. It shall break in pieces and consume all these kingdoms, and it shall stand forever. Of course, that is the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ, um, the, the millennial reign of the Lord Jesus Christ on the earth. So in Revelation, God's promise to destroy Babylon is fulfilled. He brings an end to what Jesus talks about in Luke chapter 21, the times of the Gentiles. The Gentiles have essentially had free reign to rule the earth uh, since Babylonian times. And, uh, but that, the times of the Gentiles would have to come to an end before the Lord Jesus Christ uh, reign supreme on the earth. And this is, when Babylon has fallen, this is Jesus Christ destroying the kingdoms of this world so that the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ, uh, will, he will reign. And so he, during this time, the times of the Gentiles ends, God restores Israel to himself, and he establishes the kingdom of the Lord Jesus Christ on the earth. Revelation eleven fifteen says, then the seventh angel sounded, and there were loud voices in heaven saying, The kingdoms of this world have become the kingdoms of our Lord and of his Christ, and he shall reign forever and ever. Praise the Lord. All right, the third angel, verses 9 through 11. He warns of eternal torment for the Antichrist's followers. In verse 9, we read, If anyone worships the beast and his image, and receives his mark on his forehead or on his hand, he himself shall also drink of the wine of the wrath of God, which is poured out full strength into the cup of his indignation. He shall be tormented with fire and brimstone in the presence of the holy angels and in the presence of the Lamb. And the smoke of their torment ascends forever and ever, and they have no rest day or night, who worship the beast and his image, and whoever receives the mark of his name. The third angel's announcement is probably the most frightening of all of the announcements. It is directed at those who take the mark of the beast on their head or for, on their forehead or their hand, and anyone who takes the mark uh, is beyond salvation. They will not, they cannot be saved. They have chosen to follow the Antichrist and reject the true Christ. Uh, in the most severe tone, they are condemned forever to hell. They are condemned forever to the lake of fire. There is a point in every human life where God stops giving opportunities to repent and believe in Him. And that is the case here 
That's why he says to, to us today, now is the accepted time. Behold, today is the day of salvation. He does not promise you tomorrow. The time when you reject Christ for the last time, that is it. I don't know when that time is. But there is a time when, when the Lord says, enough. So I want to talk about this for a moment, because this particular part of the passage is about hell and about the lake of fire, ultimately. Jesus spoke more about hell than he did of heaven. Hell is real. Hell is a place prepared by God for Satan and his demons. But it is also a place where unbelieving humans go. Hell is real. Hell is awful. Listen to the description. He shall be tormented with fire and brimstone in the presence of the holy angels and the presence of the Lamb. The torment will be unrelieved torment. There will be no parties in hell. It is a place of unquenchable fire and brimstone. In addition, the suffering will occur in full view of the angels and in full view of the Lamb, the presence of the Lamb, the presence of the Lord Jesus Christ. And for all eternity, those who refuse to believe God exists and that He sent His Son to the cross to save their souls will know that the truth that salvation is only found in the Lord Jesus Christ, and they rejected him. There is no possible way for them to be saved. They will be tormented. Hell is awful. And hell is eternal. The Bible says, and the smoke of their torment ascends forever and ever. And they have no rest, day or night. Hell never Ends. People are not annihilated. They don't fall asleep and never wake up. That's a lie from the pit of hell. Hell is real. Hell is awful. And hell is eternal. And they will dwell in eternal torment. It never, 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 never ends. The fourth angel in uh, verse 14 then I looked, and behold, a white cloud, and on the cloud sat one like the Son of Man, having on his head a golden crown, and in his hand a sharp sickle. And another angel came out of the temple, crying with a loud voice to him who sat on the cloud, Thrust in your sickle and reap, for the time has come for you to reap, for the harvest of the earth is ripe. So he who sat on the cloud, thrust in his sickle on the earth, and the earth was reaped. The scene that we see here in Revelation is actually the fulfillment of Daniel's prophecy in Daniel chapter 7. In chapter 7, verse 13, we read this, I was watching in the night visions, and behold, one like the Son of Man, coming with the clouds of heaven. He came to the Ancient of Days, and they brought him near before him. Then to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom, that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion, which shall not pass away, and his kingdom the one which shall not be destroyed. The one, like the Son of Man, is identified in Daniel, is identified in chapter 14 of Revelation, but was earlier identified in Revelation, um, chapter 1, verse 13. John identified the one like the Son of Man. His name is Jesus Christ. On his head, in this chapter 14, is a golden crown. Now, although the Lord Jesus Christ is the King of kings and Lord of lords, this crown is not the royal diadem that you would expect of a king, you know, with all the pointy things and the jewels and all that. That's not this crown. Now, he probably will wear a crown like that, but this particular crown is called a Stephanus crown. It is a crown of a victor. It's the crown that would be placed upon the head of an Olympic runner, for example, who 
fought and competed in the race and won. They would put a Stephanus crown on him. In this particular case, it's the Lord Jesus Christ. And he is uh, placed on his head is a Stephanus crown as the victor. He is triumphant, conquering warrior who is victorious over all of his enemies. When Jesus Christ came the first time, we offered him a crown. And it was a crown of thorns. And he took it willingly and died on the cross for our sins. But when he comes a second time, there is no death. Not for him. When he comes again, he will defeat his enemies and wear the victor's crown, conquering all his enemies. And he holds in his hand a sharp sickle, waiting, waiting for the command to come from God the Father to reap a harvest. And the fourth angel comes to the Lord Jesus, crying with a loud voice, saying, Thrust in your sickle and reap, for the time has come for you to reap, for the harvest of the earth is ripe. Now, some of you might think it's strange or even astounding that an angel should command the Lord Jesus to do something. But don't jump to that conclusion. The angel is merely a messenger. And if you, if you noticed, he came from the temple. The temple is the dwelling place of God. And he is simply relaying a message from the Father to the Son and that uh, because the Father has committed all judgment to the Lord Jesus Christ. The angel is simply faithfully relaying the message that he was given from God the Father. This is a command that the Lord Jesus Christ has been waiting for. And when he receives it, he then reaps the harvest. The final harvest is about to begin. The sharp harvest is applied to a ripe world. And the earth dwellers are described as a ripe harvest. And it's interesting the word that is used here, ripe. It doesn't mean that they're, they're, they've now reached maturity. It means that they are well beyond the point of uh, usefulness. Okay? It's like a harvest that has been, been left in the field to rot. And that's really what we're describing here. That's the way the world is. It is completely rotten to the core. And that is what the Lord Jesus is reaping. Uh, withered, rotten, overripe group of people who have rejected him as their only Lord and Savior. There is not one Gentile left at this point um, who, is, who can be saved. It's the very end of the tribulation. So we're going to be, uh, I think next week, we're going to look at the bold judgment. So chronologically, we're ahead of, ahead of that right now. We're going to go back a little bit to kind of fill in the missing pieces next week and, and then bring us back to this once we get into chapters 17, 18, 19. Um, but the word ripe means withered, rotten, overripe. And the Gentiles are being gathered up to be burned with fire. Do you remember Jesus told a parable of the wheat and the tares in Matthew 13? Let me read it to you. Another parable he put forth to them, saying, The kingdom of heaven is like a man who sowed good seed in his field. But while men slept, his enemy came and sowed tares among the wheat and went his way. But when the grain had sprouted and produced a crop, then the tares also appeared. So the servants of the owner came and said to him, Sir, did you not sow good seed in your field? How then does it have tares? And he said to them, An enemy has done this. The servant said to him, Do you want us to go and gather them up? And he said, No, lest while you gather up the tares, you also uproot the wheat with them. Let both grow together until the harvest. And at the time of the harvest, I will say to the reapers, First gather together the tares and bind them into bundles to burn them, but gather the wheat into my barn. Then Jesus later in Matthew 13 interprets the parable, and he says this, Then Jesus sent the multitude away and went into the house, and his disciples came to him, saying, Explain to us the parable of the tares of the field. He answered and said to them, He who sows the good seed is the Son of Man. The field is the world. The good seeds are the sons of the kingdom, but the tares are the sons of the wicked one. The enemy who sowed them is the devil. 
The harvest is the end of the age, and the reapers are the angels. Therefore, as the tares are gathered and burned in the fire, so it will be at the end of the age. The Son of Man will send out his angels, and they will gather out of, the, out of his kingdom all things that offend, and those who practice lawlessness, and will cast them into the furnace of fire. There will be wailing and gnashing of teeth. Then the righteous will shine forth as the sun in the kingdom of their father. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. In Revelation 14, 16, we read, So he who sat on the cloud thrust in his sickle on the earth, and the earth was reaped. And reaping in this particular instance uh, is the final phase of judgment uh, on the world when the Lord pours out the, the seven final bowl judgments. The time of grace is over. God's patience has ended, and the time of judgment will come to a conclusion. God's wrath is about to be poured out upon the earth and upon the earth dwellers. And this is the beginning of the end. After the seven bold judgments, and really part of them, is one further judgment, which is reaping of the grapes of wrath. And that's what we come to next with the fifth angel. So the fifth angel is found in chapter 14, verse 17. Then another angel came out of the temple, which is in heaven, he also having a sharp sickle. So the fifth angel came out of the temple in heaven. Again, the temple is the dwelling place of God. And from before the presence of God, and the, this angel had a sharp sickle in his hand. His mission was to reap yet another harvest, not of wheat, but of grapes. And the grapes here represent the remaining world population who have rejected Jesus Christ. They will be gathered as clusters of grapes into God's winepress. So the first harvest is the outpouring of the seven bold judgments. The second harvest of grapes is the great battle of Armageddon. We're going to look at more detail of Armageddon uh, down the way. But God, commanded the, uh, God the Father commanded the angel to go out of his presence to thrust the sharp sickle into the vineyard of the earth and gather a grape harvest uh, together. The angel leaves the heavenly temple prepared to execute God's wrath, but he waits. He doesn't do it immediately, he waits. There's a moment of delay until we see the sixth angel in chapter uh, 14, verse 18. And another angel came out from the altar who had power over fire, and he cried with a loud voice to him who had the sharp sickle, that is the fifth angel, and saying, thrust in your sharp sickle and gather the clusters of the vine of the earth, for her grapes are fully ripe. And so the sixth angel comes out from the altar and commands the fifth angel to execute divine judgment, for her grapes are fully ripe. Now notice that the sixth angel comes out from the altar in heaven. Now, you may remember from our earlier studies that we've seen the altar a couple of times earlier in the book of Revelation. We learned that there is an innumerable number of people who believed on the Lord Jesus Christ during the tribulation period, and they were martyred for their faith, for their testimony of the Lord Jesus Christ. Many of them, if not most of them, were beheaded for their faith. And, and they are, it says their souls are under the altar and they cry out to the Lord day and night saying, Lord, how long until you avenge us of our adversaries? We were put to death unrighteously just for declaring the truth to the world. How long before you avenge us of our blood? And the Lord told them to be patient. We're going to read this, uh, Revelation 6, 9. 
When he opened the fifth seal, I saw under the altar the souls of those who had been slain for the word of God and for the testimony which they held. And they cried with a loud voice, saying, How long, O Lord, holy and true, until you judge and avenge our blood on those who dwell on the earth? Then a white robe was given to each of them, and it was said to them that they should rest a little while longer until both the number of their fellow servants and their brethren who would be killed as they, as they were, was completed. And so God has an order to everything, even in his execution of judgment and wrath. And he waits until the iniquity of the world is, has reached its fullness, its ripeness. If you remember um, back when Israel was to go into the land of Canaan and take over, defeat the land of Canaan, God said that it wouldn't happen until the iniquity of the Amorites was full. So there was a timing. And once they had reached the point of no return, God said, you're going in and you're going to defeat this. Same thing is happening here. The, the ripeness of the grapes is described here. Um, we're going to go, let, let's finish the altar part first, then we'll get to that. Okay, Revelation chapter 8, verse 3 talks about the altar again. And this time it describes an angel that is associated with the altar. Listen to this. Then another angel, having a golden censer, came and stood at the altar. He was given much incense that he should offer it with the prayers of all the saints upon the golden altar, which was before the throne. And so you have the, the saints praying, asking God to avenge them of their blood. You have the angel that is mixing incense with the prayers of the saints at the altar, and the smoke of the incense with the prayers of the saints ascended before God from the angel's hand. Then the angel took the censer, filled it with fire from the altar, and threw it to the earth. And there were noises, thunderings, lightnings, and an earthquake. Now this happened earlier in the book of Revelation, but this angel is associated with the fire, associated with the altar, associated with the, um, the martyrs, who have been beheaded, that are crying out to God for vengeance. And their prayers have gone out to the Lord night and day for years. I don't know how many years there are in heaven, but earth years at least, um, until the end of the tribulation period. And finally, God is going to answer their prayer. And I believe, I can't prove it, but I believe this same angel that we see in chapter 8 is the angel that we see in chapter 14, who is described as one who is basically controlling fire. And, and that's what he did back in chapter 8. So it seems that the sixth angel has been associated with the martyrs at the heavenly altar during the tribulation period. He has power over fire, which he has already cast upon the earth in judgment. God has patiently waited until the martyrs were gathered into the safety of heaven, and that is the time when the iniquity on the earth is full. The grapes of wrath are ripe for judgment. So the clusters of grapes of the earth are gathered, and the grapes represent the remaining unsaved people on the earth who survived the seven bowl judgments. They are the grapes, and they are fully ripe. Now, in this case, it's not rotten grapes. These are literally described here as ripe grapes, the type that, you know, when they harvest in Napa, they're fully ripe. That's when they are the juiciest, right? And so the grapes are thrust into the wine press of the wrath of God. The wine press, we know, is the um, valley or the Jezreel Valley, also known as the Valley of Megiddo, also known as the place of Armageddon, the last great battle uh, place on earth. And the angel thrusts his sickle into the earth and gathers the grapes, the unsaved nations gathered together in the valley of Megiddo, basically to fight against Israel. And ultimately, when the Lord Jesus Christ comes, they, instead of fighting enemies, they now all become one to fight against the Lord. Okay, And this is the scene that is being painted here the details of it are yet to come in later chapters, but just to give you kind of a heads up, you can look at two verses in Revelation 19. 
Then I saw an angel standing in the sun, and he cried with a loud voice, saying to all the birds that fly in the midst of heaven, Come and gather together for the supper of the great God, that you may eat the flesh of kings, the flesh of captains, the flesh of mighty men, the flesh of horses, and those who sit on them, and the flesh of all people, free and slave, both small and great. This is incredible carnage that takes place in the, in the uh, battle of Armageddon. Now, uh, in Isaiah chapter 63, verses 2 through 4, we read something about the winepress judgment. So the picture on the screen is of a typical winepress. I'm going to talk about that in just a minute, but let me read Isaiah 63, verses 2 and 4, to, to, to four first. Isaiah asked the question, Why is your apparel red, and your garments like one who treads in the winepress? The answer comes back, I, and this is the Lord speaking, I have trodden the winepress alone, and from the peoples no one was with me. For I have trodden them in my anger and trampled them in my fury. Their blood is sprinkled upon my garments, and I have stained all my robes. For the day of vengeance is in my heart, and the year of my redeemed has come. It is a strange work, the work of judgment, but that is the work that has to be done ultimately. God's patience, just by its very nature, has to come to an end at some point. And this is the point of no return. The picture here is of God trampling the grapes in the wine press. In ancient Israel, wine presses were made in a similar fashion to what you see on the screen. Uh, they were vats cut into limestone floors, and a large pool-like vat was called the treading floor, where the grapes were gathered and people in their bare feet would stomp on the grapes. The grape flesh would be crushed and the juice of the grapes would, would flow from the stomped grapes. The juice would fill the vat and then the vat would have an opening where the grape juice would flow over a lip into a channel to another open vat. Yeast from the skin of grapes would begin fermentation process and soon it would become wine. As the grapes were being stomped, the juice from the grapes would splash up and stain the legs and the garments of those who were stomping or treading out the grapes. The sixth angel, we read, thrust his sickle into the earth and gathered the vine of the earth and threw it into the great winepress of the wrath of God. And the winepress was trampled outside the city, so the city here being Jerusalem, 60 miles north of Jerusalem is the valley of Megiddo, where Armageddon takes place. And um, so trampled outside the city, and blood came out of the winepress up to the horses' bridles for 1,600 furlongs, which is equivalent to 184 miles. The nations of unbelievers are gathered together. On this map that you see, there's a very large section from uh, the Mediterranean Sea to the river Jordan called the Valley of Jezreel. Megiddo is a, a town uh, there. That's why it's associated with uh, the Valley of Megiddo. Uh, so the, God's wine press is that valley. And uh, they're gathered together for the battle of Armageddon. Armageddon is God's wine press, the world's military, horses, and the flesh of all people are the grapes. And God's wrath is being poured out upon sinners for one last and final time. And the slaughter will be unlike anything this world has ever seen. God destroys his enemies, the blood of the unsaved is squeezed out, and so great is the slaughter 
that the blood reaches as high as the horse's bridles in the winepress, and then it flows out through the valley for 184 miles. Such carnage we have never seen. The Lord will destroy all his enemies. Chapter 14 presents two glorious truths. One at the beginning, one at the end. And the first is that the Lord will deliver the godly out of tribulation. The 144,000 represent that. They lived, survived all the way through, and in the end they stood faultless before the Lord in his glorious kingdom. The Lord knows how to deliver the godly. Okay? The second glorious truth is that the Lord will overthrow all his enemies. All of his enemies will be destroyed. And I hope you find that praiseworthy because if you deal with sinners as a sinner, you know the wickedness that takes place on this earth right now, and it's only getting worse. The chapter 14 opens with the preservation of his saints, and it ends with the total destruction of his enemies. Peter wrote about this in 2 Peter 2. He says, For if God did not spare the angels who sinned, but cast them down to hell and delivered them into chains of darkness to be reserved for judgment, and did not spare the ancient world, but saved Noah, one of eight people, a preacher of righteousness, bringing the flood on the whole world of the ungodly, and turned the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah into ashes, condemned them to destruction, making them an example of those who afterward would live ungodly, and delivered righteous Lot, who was oppressed by the filthy conduct of the wicked, for that righteous man dwelling among them tormented his righteous soul from day to day by seeing and hearing their lawless deeds. If the Lord did all of that, he preserved the righteous, he destroyed the wicked, Peter then concludes, then the Lord knows how to deliver the godly out of temptation and to reserve the unjust under the punishment for the day of judgment. Hebrews asks the question, how shall we escape if we neglect so great a salvation? We cannot save ourselves. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes to the Father but by me. There is only one way of salvation. You accept it, you become righteous because he gives you his righteousness. That's the exchange. You give your sin to him, he pays for it all. He gives you his righteousness in exchange. He is the only way of salvation. The truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. For those who reject his salvation, they seal their own doom. They seal their own doom. Today is the day of salvation. But I want to end on this note for believers. As a believer, we talked about this at the beginning, that God knows how to preserve the righteous and make us stand faultless before his presence. In Jude chapter 24, Jude chapter 24, Jude 24 and 25, there is only one chapter, we read this. Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you faultless, before the presence of his glory with exceeding joy to God, our Savior, who alone is wise, be glory and majesty, dominion and power, both now and forever. Amen. We are going to sing those words, um, but from the New American Standard Version. Um, it fits better with the tune. So you can either read it on the screen or it's 
maybe number 36 or something like that in the book, uh, the, the chorus book. So let's just sing this, and then at the end we'll, we'll just pray. Now to him who is able to keep you, who is able to keep you from stumbling, and to make you stand in the presence of his glory, blameless with great joy. To the only God, our Savior, through Jesus Christ, our Lord, be glory, majesty, dominion, and power before all time and now and forever. Amen, amen. Amen, 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 amen. Let's pray. Lord, we see in this passage uh, two wonderful truths, the truth that you will you can, you're able, and ultimately you will uh, preserve your saints. You're faithful to bring us to stand before you faultless because of the work the Lord Jesus Christ did on the cross on our behalf. We thank you, Lord Jesus, for dying for us, for paying sin's awful price, and for giving us your righteousness in exchange for our sin. We thank you, Lord Jesus, and praise your name. You alone are worthy. You alone are the Savior um, of all mankind. And we do pray too, Lord, because you will defeat all of your enemies. We pray for them now. We pray, Lord, that today might be the day when sinners turn to you in droves and come to saving knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ. We ask this in his precious name. Amen.